0: Let's pray together. God, now come by your Holy Spirit through these preached words and feed your people, O Lord. As you were faithful to do even that day, come and feed our souls, nourish us with your word. We acknowledge, O Lord, that in our own hands what we have is inadequate and not enough, but you can take and multiply and bless your people with it. So come do that and show us that you are the very one that we need. You are itself the bread that our souls need. So come make Jesus look great. Let every heart see, I see, mind believe, and come to love Christ and trust him more. And use us for your sake. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are continuing to work our way through the gospel according to mark and if you were here last week you heard as dennis preached to us and last week we were sort of seated in the palace hall of herod the king we were sitting at the great feast and banquet it was herod's birthday party and it was a feast like jerusalem had probably never seen before and now you get such a stark and vivid contrast you get in the very next story a vivid contrast because now you're going to have a meal hosted by Jesus, the king of all kings, and this meal will be in every way very different than the one that we just saw. This feast that Jesus hosts will not be in an opulent palace, but rather will take place in a dry and dusty desert, in the middle of the wilderness, in a remote and desolate place, Here, it will not be the sort of who's who of Jerusalem that's in attendance. If you remember, Herod invited the leading nobles and the officials and all the who's who of Jerusalem. Here, it will be a sea of needy people. Sick people, demon-possessed people, people who run to Jesus with all kinds of desperate need. It seems like almost anybody and everybody was invited to this meal. Not the who's who, just the whoever was invited to this meal. 5,000 men were counted, let alone women and children. Last week, Dennis rightly taught us that the meal at Herod's Palace was like a raucous bachelor party. Right? Craft beers and caviar and all the rest. Here will be a humble meal of sardines and biscuits at best. It will be a meal very different, yet by the end of the meal last week, what you learned was that Herod was a wicked ruler who would do anything to serve his own needs, even if it meant sacrificing someone else like John. By the end of this meal, you will see that Jesus is the good shepherd, who will meet our every need, even if it means sacrificing himself. Jesus is the good shepherd who will meet our every need, even if it means sacrificing himself. Here's how the story starts. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. You're going to leave it open in verses 30 to 44, what Danielle just read for us. Here's how the story starts. Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So if you remember, by the way, just a few weeks ago we heard how Jesus had sent the disciples out two by two. This was sort of their first ever short-term missions trip. They had been sent out by Jesus to teach and do marvelous works, and now they're eager to return and tell Jesus everything that happened. Having just come back from Africa ourselves, my wife and our children, I get what the disciples must have felt. The entire time we were there, as we taught and all that we had done, we were eager to come back and tell you all all that had happened. So you can imagine these disciples can't wait to sit Jesus down, perhaps over a meal, and finally just tell him all the things that had happened, all the things that they had done, all the things that they had taught. That's what they want. And yet, they can hardly get a word in, Because the crowds are there again. We've seen this in Mark. Whenever Jesus and the disciples want some time, the crowds seem to interrupt. Verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desert place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I suspect that Peter struggled with being hangry. You know, that combination of hunger and anger. This is the second time in just a few short chapters Peter has mentioned we couldn't even eat right? The crowds were there. We couldn't even get a bite to eat. And so now a second time you're told they just want to sit down with Jesus, debrief the mission trip, right? How important is that? Here at Seven Mile Road, we don't have a single service where we don't recap it the next morning. They had gone on their first short-term mission trip. All they want to do is sit down with Jesus over a meal and debrief what had just happened, but they can't. Instead, we're told here, verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Seeing that they couldn't even have some time together, Jesus said, let's go to a desolate place, to to the wilderness, to the desert. There we'll rest for a minute, right? It's an important word, by the way, you who serve Jesus. To know Jesus cared enough for these men that he wanted rest for them. We don't work for Pharaoh like in the Old Testament. He's not just for what he can churn out of us, how many bricks he can make out of us. Jesus was inviting these disciples, come rest. There was something more than their productivity that mattered to Jesus. So he invites them to come rest. But here's the scene. As I thought of this, I, I pictured some of you who serve as counselors and see clients. Or some of you are doctors and see patients. Or some of you are teachers and around students all the time. There comes a point where you need a break. You can't see one more patient. You can't visit with one more client. You can't be around one more student. It's vacation time. You've got to get away. You've got to rest. And the scene would be you get on a plane to go off to some distant place to rest for a while. By the time you deboard the plane, there they are waiting at the gate for you. Right? There's your clients. There's your students. There's your your patients going, Doc, we found out where you were going to go and we got here ahead of you. That's what happens here. This great crowd sees where Jesus and the disciples are going. They run ahead of them and meet them at the gate. And here's what Mark says how Jesus responds. Verse 34 When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Mark highlights that when Jesus steps off the boat, and whenever there's a boat and the shore, there's always a crowd. That's what we've seen in Mark every time so far. And now he steps off the boat and there's this great crowd. And Mark highlights for us the emotion that welled up in the heart of Jesus. Mark points out for us that instinctively... What welled up in the heart of Jesus was compassion. Now, that's just a small detail, but I found that striking. Striking because it would have taken a lot of work, a lot of soul care, for example. Some brothers encouraging me to have a better response for that to have been my response in the moment. What would have instinctively welled up in me was frustration or annoyance or or just being put out. Right? I, I mean... Here this crowd was, and they have basically messed up everything. Everything Jesus had planned. The crowd had derailed his plan. They had shifted his agenda for the day. His plan was very clear. On his I calendar, he had put debrief with the disciples. That's what he had blocked the whole day to do. And you type A people, you time management people, can you get this? Jesus got nothing on his list done that day. Nothing he intended to do that day got done. His plans were completely derailed. The whole day, if you will, was wasted in that way. He intended to debrief with his disciples after their first missions trip. And the whole thing is gone because these crowds interrupt Jesus' plan. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you find ministry and serving Jesus so much easier if it weren't for the people it's the, the people that get involved. You, you dads on Father's Day, wouldn't fatherhood and parenting be so much easier if it wasn't for the kids, right? It's the kids that make father. I would be the best father if it wasn't for the kids, right? They're constantly needy and full of interruptions. This is the way that life is. Yet I'm struck by Jesus' response. I'm reminded of this passage I read last summer. Last summer we had a few weeks in India to rest. And while we were there, I read this book called The Rest of God, Restoring Sabbath to Your Soul. It was this wonderful book that I'd highly recommend to you. The author, this man named Mark Buchanan, he talks about sort of Jesus' sense of time, Jesus' schedule. It's a lengthy quote, but I, I think you'll be helped by it. Here's what he says. He says of Jesus, He lived life with the clearest and highest purpose, yet he veered and strayed from one interruption to the next with no apparent plan in hand other than his single overarching one, which is get to Jerusalem and die. Otherwise, his days, as far as we can figure, were a series of zigzags and detours, apparent whims and second thoughts, interruptions and delays, off-the-cuff plans, spur-of-the-moment decisions, leisurely meals, serendipitous rounds of storytelling. His purpose was crystallized, but his method almost scattershot. My whole life, I've been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted, Henry Nowen said near the end of his life, until I discovered the interruptions were my work. To live on purpose means to go and do likewise. Purposefulness requires paying attention, and paying attention means almost by definition that we make room for surprise. We become hospitable to interruption, and to sustain it we need theological touch for it. A conviction in our bones that God is Lord of our days and years and that his purposes and his presence often come disguised as detours, messes, defeats. Lengthy quote, but worth your consideration. Jesus had this unbelievable ability to not see the need of this crowd as an interruption to his agenda, as a, as a disturbance to his purpose, Rather, Jesus had the ability to see they were his purpose. It was for them that he had come. Oh, to be more like Jesus in this regard. When Jesus saw them, he saw a needy crowd. And what welled up in his heart was compassion. I mean, you don't outrun a boat onto the other side of the lake unless you were in need. Unless there's something desperate. And as we read the gospel accounts, we're told this crowd was desperate. Some of them came to Jesus because they needed another miracle. Some of them came because they needed another healing. Some of them came because they had heard what he could do for the demon-possessed. John, in his account, lets us in, clues us in that some were there because they had political aspirations and overtones. They were going to violently overthrow Herod. We saw what kind of ruler he was last week. And they were going to, if needed, make Jesus king even if it took force. So they come for all these different reasons. And what we've seen throughout the gospel, according to Mark so far, is that the crowds never really get Jesus right. You don't get massive amounts of disciples from the crowd. They're sort of watching the show. They never come for real good, pure motives. And yet, what I'm caught by is, despite the fact that their motives may have been messed up, Jesus had compassion on them. I don't know about you, is that not a comfort that in your neediness, when you come to Him, and even if you don't come to Him perfectly right, even if you don't come to Him with perfect motives, even if things are a little messed up in here, the emotion that wells up in His heart when you come is compassion. That, that Jesus isn't sitting in heaven annoyed by your coming again, going, oh great, what does He want now? What does she need this time? But rather... Compassion wells up in the heart of God when you approach Him with neediness. Jesus sees this crowd and He feels compassion. And Mark tells us specifically why He felt compassion. Because He had compassion on them. Look at the verse. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw this mass of Israel and felt compassion welling up in His heart because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean? Well, you'll know that this is not the first time. You should know this is not the first time this phrase appears in the Bible. Sheep without a shepherd. The first time it appears is way back in the Old Testament in this book called Numbers. It's said by this man named Moses. Moses had led all of Israel, God's people, out of slavery in Egypt, and brought them through the wilderness to the brink of this land God had promised them, the promised land, a land that was going to be good for them in every way. And here they are standing at the brink, and now Moses is about to die. And when he's about to die, and he sees this sea of humanity in front of him, this ocean of needy people before him, Moses prays to the Lord, and he says, Lord, don't leave this people without a leader. Don't let them be like sheep without a shepherd. That's Numbers chapter Uh, 27. Back then he prays, don't let this people be like sheep without a shepherd. And God answers that prayer by raising up this man named Joshua. Joshua will ensure that the people are led and provided for and protected and guided and directed and so they have a shepherd. Later priests will come. Later kings will come. All these are supposed to act like shepherds for God's people. But all the while in the Old Testament, hear this, There's a sense in which none of the priests were enough and none of the kings were enough and none of the prophets were enough. No, God himself would have to be their shepherd. If Israel was going to have a shepherd, it would have to be Yahweh himself. In fact, perhaps the most famous psalm of all the psalms is what? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's that a picture of? Yahweh at last has to be the shepherd of his people. And now here is this sea of humanity in the desert. Mark 6. The sea of Israel is in the wilderness. They're a needy people and they have no shepherd. Sure, they have a king, but we already saw last week what their king was like. You saw what Herod was like. Sure, they have religious leaders, but we've already seen what the Pharisees are like. And here Jesus is, he looks at the sea of Israel and they're like sheep without a shepherd. Only now in Mark 6, the better Moses is standing there looking at them the better Joshua is standing there looking at them. The true shepherd pictured in Psalm 23 is standing there looking at them. And when Jesus, the better Moses, the better Joshua, the Psalm 23 shepherd looks at this people, compassion wells up in his heart. And the text says he begins to feed them. First with his word, right? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But not only will Jesus feed their souls, He will feed their bodies as well. Verse 35. And when it grew late, His disciples came to Him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Right? The disciples look, and now we're in the middle of the wilderness. There's an ocean of people. There's nothing to eat. And so they begin to advise Jesus. Mark, by the way, has given us some of these exchanges between Jesus and the disciples. And when Mark gives us these exchanges, he doesn't hide the sort of frustration that's brewing up in the disciples. He doesn't hide the fact that they're a bit disappointed with Jesus, that sometimes they're frustrated. He doesn't hide the fact that there's sort of an attitude in what they say. It comes off a bit rude and even disrespectful. They're constantly trying to direct Jesus. Right? Jesus, listen, I don't know if you noticed, but this is a remote place. Jesus is the one who had brought them to that remote place. By the way, and the hour is now late, so listen, you need to send them away so that they can go find something to eat. Let them go into the countryside or the villages or get something to eat. Now, even their suggestion may not have been all that realistic. Right? Where are these people supposed to go and, and show up at the front door of a restaurant and say, we need table for 5,000? Right? But, but the point is, that's not their problem. Jesus is about to make it their problem. Verse 37. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Wouldn't it have been, wouldn't you have loved to have seen, like, the exchange between Jesus and the disciples? What their faces must have looked like as they talked to one another? They say, listen, send them away so they can find something to eat. You give them something to eat. Right? And and you've got to imagine, Jesus says these things. They're in the middle of the boat a few weeks ago. Why are you so afraid? What do you mean, why are we so afraid? You have to give this people, 5,000 men, something to eat. You give them something to eat. And so here's how they respond. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Right? You get this exchange. So they're saying back to Jesus. Jesus, okay, you want us to give them something to eat. Should we go get 200 denarii? That's about 8 to 12 months worth of wages. This is the same Jesus who, by the way, sent them on a missions trip saying, don't carry any money on you. And now they say back, are we supposed to spend, what, $30,000, $40,000 to feed this people? Now, even in their response, it's not a real response. In in this way, I think these guys would have fit in perfect at 7 Mile Road. They're being sarcastic, right? It's this good sarcasm. They they don't have $30,000 sitting in their pocket. So what they're saying is, you want us to give them something to eat? Okay, great. Should we spend $40,000 for one meal for them? Does that sound right, Jesus? And Jesus responds, go find out what you have. Can you imagine them going to now find out, we've got to feed 5,000 men. They come back and they go, we found it. Five loaves and and two fish. That's what we got back. And then Jesus is about to speak to them. But, But if you step back for a moment, here's the situation. The people of Israel are standing in the middle of the desert and they have nothing to eat. The people of Israel are in the middle of the wilderness, and they have no food to eat. And the disciples have just asked, where on earth could we get enough food to feed them? Now Mark knows that some smart Jewish reader, when he was first reading this account, would have immediately said, this happened already. We've seen this already. You already talked about Moses, the shepherd for God's people. Well, well, this exactly happened with Moses. The sea of God's people, all those people were in the wilderness. They had nothing to eat. And in fact, the disciples have said exactly what Moses said. I found it so interesting. Do you know that in Numbers verse 11, just hear this verse. Moses, as he's thinking about how am I going to feed this people? Where am I going to get enough bread and meat? He says this, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? That's not Mark 6. That's numbers. Moses had said, look, if I caught all the fish of the sea, would it be enough for them? And here the disciples are, Mark 6, with a sea of Israel in front of them. And they've got five pieces of bread and two fish. And they go, what on earth are we supposed to do? Well, Yahweh had fed his people once. And now the good shepherd is here. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Green grass. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me to green pastures. So they sat down in groups, verse 40, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5000 men Jesus doesn't just feed them i mean it's not just even he barely meets they eat till they can't eat anymore He gives the bread to the disciples, they go out. You can sort of picture it, sort of this relay. He gives it to the apostles, they go out to the crowd of 50, they come back, there's more bread. They go up to a crowd of 100, they come back, there's more bread. They keep going and giving, they keep coming, and there's always more bread. So much so that they ate till they were all satisfied. Meaning this is the buffet, where you've got the green card, meaning keep the food coming. They all finally pulled up the red card. We can't eat anymore. We tapped out, right? They had so much food that they had 12 baskets left over. Jesus, in his compassion, has overwhelmingly met all their needs. Now, that's the story. I want to give you two words of application and then we'll be done. Two things I want you to see from this miracle. Right? This is not just a miracle. Jesus isn't just a magician with these naked displays of power. There's something you're supposed to see in these miracles. And two things I want you to see so that we can apply this story. This story, this miracle points to what Jesus had come to do for us and what Jesus intends to do through us. If you see the miracle right, you're not just going to see a naked power of dis, uh, a display of power. You're going to see in the miracle what Jesus had come to do for us and what Jesus intends to do through us. The first word of application. This story points us to what Jesus had come to do for us. So far in Mark, we've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him cast out demons and calm the storm and raise the dead and now feed the needy. We have seen Jesus meet every need of his people. But moreover, this miracle is pointing to something. What's it pointing to? Do you notice that Jesus is the host of this meal? In verse 41, he's the one who prays a word of blessing to God. In that picture, he would have sort of been like a Jewish father who offered a blessing to God before giving out the food. Jesus is the host of this meal. And in this meal, he's anticipating another meal that Jesus would be the host of. Do you notice his words, how the miracle takes place? He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to his disciples. Have you heard that before? If you've ever come to Seven Mile Road Church, you've heard us say that same phrase every week when we come to the Lord's table, that he took it, And blessed God and broke it and gave to his disciples. In fact, that same exact sequence of words is what Mark is going to use in chapter 14. Except these words will show up again in chapter 14. You don't have to turn there now. Verse 22, and the scene is now one year from the feeding of the 5,000. It's one year after the feeding of the 5,000 and now it's the night before Jesus is about to die and he has one final meal with his disciples. And he takes bread and blesses God. And he breaks it and gives it to them. And says, this is my body. Take and eat this. This meal in the wilderness is pointing to another meal that Jesus will host. Where Jesus is going to communicate, listen, I'm not just the shepherd who has come to feed you. I am myself the bread that has to be broken for you. I'm not just the shepherd that's come to feed you. I am myself the meal. I am the bread that has come to be broken for you. I read a preacher who said it this way. He said, imagine you're dying of hunger. Right? A hard thing for us to imagine. But imagine you're starving to death. And you come upon a table that has a loaf of bread. At that point, he said, only one of two things can happen. If the bread is going to stay whole, then you will starve and die and literally go to pieces. But if you are to be whole, then that bread must be broken into pieces. But both of you can't stay whole. It's either you or the bread. Either you or the bread. For you to be whole, the bread must be broken into pieces so that you can be made whole. And Jesus is the one who on the cross would say, I will be torn to pieces so that you might be made whole. I will be broken so that you might be restored. On the cross, it's Jesus who shouts, it can't be both of us. And so for you to be whole, I will be broken. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. This meal shows us what Jesus had come to do for us. But also this miracle intends to show us what Jesus had come to do through us as well. What Jesus had come to do through us as well. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus includes the disciples in this miracle? If you know this much about Jesus, you know that he didn't need to do that, right? Do you notice in the verse it says, He broke the bread and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. Meaning, he chose that the disciples would be the dispensers of the bread. He did not need to do that. Surely, Jesus could have said, when they came to him rude with a little bit of attitude, Jesus could have said, stand back, and manna could have fallen from heaven. In fact, wouldn't it have been more impressive if he did it that way? Wouldn't it have been something if Israelite men are standing in the wilderness, and suddenly bread falls from heaven? Surely, that would have convinced them that the better Moses is here. He doesn't do it that way. Instead, he does it in a way that almost in the text, you're not even sure if the 5,000 knew at the moment what was happening. They just see the disciples coming to them with bread over and over and over again. Why did he choose it to do it that way? Surely this Jesus could have said, let there be bread, and there would have been bread. Why did he choose to do it in such a way that he would break it and give it to the disciples, and they would be the means by which the thousands are fed? It seems in this story, Jesus is not only committed to meeting the needs of the people, he's committed to doing that through the disciples. He's committed to having their hands be the one. They, in the story, are not the source of the bread, but they become the channels of it, the vehicles by which this miracle of Jesus is given to the people. What did they bring to the story? All that they brought was inadequacy, insufficient weakness. What they had and who they were was not enough for the needs of the crowd. What they brought was a certain rude unbelief coupled with five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000. And in that, friends, is a picture of the entire Christian life and all of Christian ministry and all of Christian service. It's a picture of what Jesus intends to do through us, If you're here and you feel inadequate in the face of something God has called you to, would you give me one more minute of your time? Because this story is for you. If you feel inadequate in the face of something God has called you to, this story is in here for you. And in every area God's called us to, Don't you feel an overwhelming sense of inadequacy? You're supposed to be a parent, husband, a spouse, a Christian witness for Jesus at work, a good student who brings glory to Christ, a missionary on your block. You're supposed to fight sin as a Christian. You're supposed to suffer what you're going through and do it well in such a way that brings glory to God. In every arena of your life, you're supposed to bring glory to God. Do you not feel an overwhelming sense of inadequacy and weakness and not enoughness for that task? I think today's Father's Day. I think of what it looks like to be a parent. I think of a mother of young children, which mom has not thrown up her hands at some point and said, I can't do this. I'm never going to be patient enough the way that these kids need me to be. I'm never going to be put together enough. I'm never going to have all of it right just the way that I'm supposed to be. And every parent struggles with the thought, I'm going to mess these kids up. Every minister will tell you the same thing. Every missionary would tell you the same thing. Every student trying to live for Jesus in his campus or his dorm room would tell you the same thing. You are unbelievably inadequate, not enough, insufficient, and weak. And that's exactly as God would have it. That's exactly how God has designed it. God wants you to be fully aware of your inadequacy so that in that dependency, he might take your little and make it a lot. That's the way it's always going to be. I really thought this week, maybe if you get to a certain level of Christian maturity, you know, like when we're 80 and we're really godly and holy, finally then, and then I thought to myself, what what am I saying? That I'll finally reach the place where I won't be dependent on God? You'll never get to that place. In fact, I suspect the holier you become, the more aware you are of your inadequacy and your dependency upon him. He's never wired it so that you'll finally be free of your desperate need for him. So in every arena, to whatever God has called you, this story is in the text to tell you. What your little is, is in his hands can become a lot. That's what the disciples learned. And that's what they would go on for the rest of their lives in Christian ministry doing as well. So this morning, do you see the loaves and the fish and the feeding of the 5,000? But through it, do you more importantly see that in this story, you get a glimpse of what Jesus had come to do for us and moreover, of what he intends to do through us as well. Let's pray together.